It is a privilege, Father, to, uh, to come in and have access in your presence. In the Old Testament, only one man on one day could go into the Holy of Holies. And uh, that was the high priest. But because of what Jesus has done, because of the sacrifice he made of his, of his own life, of his own blood, of his own body, um, well, the veil was torn in two. And it is remarkable that now we can come into your presence through the blood of Christ, through the name of Jesus, and we can talk with you. And we can, uh, we can tell you what's going on. And there's a lot going on. Uh, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this. And he gave us a model prayer. But before he gave us the Lord's Prayer, he, he said, your father knows what you need before you ask him. And we often think, well, then if he knows what I need, why should I pray? And the simple answer to that is that prayer isn't for you, it's for us. It enables us to uh, unload our stuff. It enables you to, uh, well, you give us, you give us access to you and We've all, most of us have had uh, situations with our little kids, little grandkids. There's something really heavy on their heart, and they just come, and they look us right in the eye, and they just start unburdening themselves. We get to do that. That's a tremendous privilege. How grateful we are for your faithfulness, your absolute faithfulness. We're up and down. We're all over the map. We get excited then we get depressed. We set goals and we miss them. Uh, we have highs and then we have lows. Uh, we get real focused and then we get distracted. None of that is true about you. Uh, we say we're going to do things and we don't. So, Lord, it's not about our faithfulness to you. It's about your faithfulness to us because we're unfaithful. We, we don't have a great track record of consistency, any of us. Now, we want to grow there. And, and we're, we're striving to, uh, to become more disciplined, but we'll never get where we want to be in this life. But we can grow and we can mature. But you, however are always faithful. You, you never vary. You never change. You, you never pull a promise on us. You never say one thing and do another. You are there. You are consistent. Therefore, we can build our lives on you and your word. You're just faithful. We're up and down. You're faithful. So you're, you give us stability. You give us calm. You give us peace. You give us forgiveness. These are all benefits of knowing Christ and being adopted into your family. 
Thank you that your mercies are new through every season of life and they're new every morning. As we start this new semester, instruct us again. May your spirit teach us. Give us open, teachable hearts. Every guy in here has blind spots. All of us have blind spots. We can't see certain things in our lives. We just flat don't see them. Folks around us see them. We don't see them. Would you open our eyes so that we might see something that we haven't seen before that you want us to pay attention to and give us teachable hearts, and then as a result, we will grow. We want to grow. We just don't want to take in information. We want to apply it to our lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Uh, we're starting a new study tonight, and I had mixed feelings about doing this. Last semester, we did a series, I, I did a book in 1990 called Point Man, uh, all about men becoming spiritual leaders of their family. What does that look like? What is a spiritual leader? If your father wasn't a spiritual leader, how in the world would you know how to be a spiritual leader of your home? If, if, if it wasn't modeled for you, how would you know what to do? Um, so we just went through Point Man, and uh, one of the reasons we did it is that we never had it on video, and we wanted to video it and make it available to other groups and other churches, and we were able to do that. Um, so I had mixed feelings about doing this, because... I did a book called Finishing Strong. And what happens is we get requests all the time. And I'm just being real honest with you guys. Hey, you got video on that? Have you got any? And the answer is no, we don't. So I want to put it on video and I want to teach it here. Uh, because you see, in the Christian life, see, once you get serious about Christ, uh, that's, that's why the first book I did was Point Man. When you get serious about Christ and you decide, you know, I'm going to give leadership to my home and to my wife and kids and I'm going to put the Lord in my life. and uh, Well, then immediately, here's what happens. Immediately you get resistance. Immediately. Because you see, when you get serious about Christ, you're going to get spiritual resistance from the enemy that you never got before because he didn't need to give you resistance because you were already neutralized because you were passive or you were apathetic. Um, you know apathy. You, you know what it is to be apathetic. Uh, actually, one guy said, no, I don't know what that means and I don't care. <laughs> uh, well, then you've, you've got it then, man. But see, when you start getting focused and you start getting serious about the Lord, then you're in a brand new Quite frankly, you're in a new race. And the Christian life is a race. That metaphor is used throughout Scripture. And what happens is, the name of the game in the Christian life then becomes, as you start this trek with Christ, as you start this race with Christ, the question becomes, how are you going to finish? And 
really what we want to do and what our desire is, is to have a priority in our lives now of actually finishing strong in this race we call the Christian life. Uh, I have maybe dealt with this here and there over the years, just a shot here and then, but I've never gone through the material because you see, in the priority of finishing strong, there are some real key aspects to getting a mindset of deciding what I really want to do with my life. See, I want my life to count. I want my life to be productive. I want my life to be a life of influence. And all of us in this room, for X amount of years, and it's different with every guy, we were in a race and we were pursuing goals, but they were the wrong thing. We were, we were motivated, we were busy, we were active, we had tremendous energy, but we were pursuing the wrong objectives. Uh, quite frankly, we had idols in our lives that we had set up. And a lot of time, a lot of energy, uh, years and years, in some cases, decades uh, of our lives given to those, and then the Lord got a hold of us, pulled us to himself, and we realized, wait a minute. Those were wasted years. I want my life to be... Whatever I've got left, how many more breaths I have that God has apportioned for me in my life, I want to maximize those, and I want to actually be productive, and quite frankly, I want to finish strong. See, this is a priority in the life of a Christian man. So I want us to explore this, break it down into bite-sized pieces for 10 weeks. I'd like you to turn with me, if you would, to Numbers chapter 13. And as you're headed to Numbers 13, let me go back to 1945. Uh, 1945 was a significant year, World War II uh, in, uh, came to an end in 1945. <clears throat> In 1945, in the United States of America, there were three young evangelists who were making a tremendous impact as GIs were coming back from World War II. We were, we were transitioning out of a period of war into a period of, of peace. Guys are coming back. Guys are coming home. Get married. Establish families the GI Bill, you could go to college, uh, you could buy a home uh, for nothing down. It was just, it, it, man, everything changed. Everything shifted. And during that time, there were three young evangelists, 25, 26, 27 years old, right in that framework, young men. And all three of them were having an impact across the United States. Uh, the first guy that comes to mind came out of the hills of North Carolina, if you will. He spoke at an average rate of 287 words a minute. If you've ever seen or heard Billy Graham as a young man in his early 20s, early 30s, he was an absolute... Now, we see Mr. Graham now. He, he is elderly. He is frail. Not a lot of time left on this earth. But when he was in his 20s, he was an absolute machine gun. I remember hearing him as a kid. Um, you could not not listen to him. 
He would reach out through that radio and grab you by the throat and pull you in. Uh, and God was using him. Now, later he would do the big stadiums and the big arenas. But at 25, 26, 27, he was the first evangelist for a ministry called Youth for Christ. And they were holding uh, events in civic auditoriums around the country, and Graham would come in, and they would pack them out. And he was having a remarkable impact. But as gifted as he was, there was another young evangelist who also was with Youth for Christ, the second one on board. Uh, his name was Chuck Templeton. He was attracting the same crowds, filling the same auditoriums. Uh, years and years ago, I talked with several men who had heard both Graham and Templeton in those Youth for Christ meetings, and I remember a couple of them telling me they actually felt Templeton was the more effective preacher, which is really something. Um, the third evangelist was a young guy named Bron Clifford. He was a Southern Baptist. He was known in the Southern Baptist denomination, was uh, doing... Uh, meetings in churches all throughout the South. Uh, at one point, did a chapel service at Baylor, and, you know, they give you 20, 25 minutes. The Spirit of God was moving in such a unique way that he went for, I, I believe, close to two hours. And the Spirit of God moved, and young people came to know the Lord, and, and they canceled class for several days. It was really remarkable. And people were saying, this young 26, 27-year-old guy is the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. Now, I have a question for you. Everyone in this room has heard of Billy Graham. But a handful, maybe less than 10, maybe less than five in this room, have ever heard of Chuck Templeton or Bron Clifford. Yet in 1945, everybody in Christianity in America was talking about it. Now, what happened? Five years later, 1950, Chuck Templeton, who shared uh, many conferences with Billy Graham, Chuck Templeton decided that he no longer believed that this book was the inspired Word of God. He decided that he no longer believed that Jesus was the Son of God. He departed from the faith, he moved to Toronto, Canada, and became a radio commentator, uh, and just died a couple, three, four years ago and denied Christ for the rest of his life. And they were saying, he's one of the greatest preachers since the Apostle Paul. Uh, the moral of that story is this. In the Christian life, it's not how you start that counts. It's how you finish. What about Bron Clifford? Greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul, all the Southern Baptist folks are saying. In 1954, Ron Clifford was found dead in a motel room in Amarillo, Texas. He died of acute alcoholism, cirrhosis of the liver. You back up a few years and you get his story. This great, young, gifted, incredible preacher was married. He and his wife had a child. The baby was born Down syndrome. Second child was born, also handicapped. He couldn't take the pressure. He couldn't take the stress. So what does he do? He abandons his wife and little kids. He starts selling, uh, and he leaves the ministry, he starts selling new Chevy somewhere, Amarillo, starts drinking. And he basically, the greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul, just drank himself right into the grave. 
And, and he was in this lousy little motel room in Amarillo. They found his body. Some preachers got an offering together to ship his body home for a decent Christian burial. Greatest preacher since the Apostle Paul. Now, the moral of that story is, in the Christian life, it's not how you start that counts. It's how you finish. You see the priority here of the desire to finish strong? Um, John Bassanio, for many, many years, pastored in Houston. And I heard John tell a story years ago. And uh, John was telling the story of having dinner with his fiance's family. He was 21 years old, graduating from Christian college. He's going to go into ministry. So they have dinner. After dinner, he goes out on the porch, sitting out there with his future father-in-law, future father-in-law Dr. Paul Beck. And um, they're just talking. And Dr. Beck had been in ministry a long time, knew that young John was going to go into ministry. And Dr. Beck said to John at one point, he said, you know, John, as you get ready to go into ministry, make sure, John, that you keep your heart close to Christ every day. Every day. And young 21-year-old John Bassanio said, well, yes, sir, I know that's important. But the older gentleman knew that the young guy wasn't quite getting it. He said, John, let me tell you why I say that. He said, it's been my experience over the years. I've seen a lot of guys come and go. I've seen a lot of guys who are remarkably gifted. I've seen a lot of guys with a lot of passion for the Lord. But John, it's been my experience that for every 10 young men who start strong with Christ in their 20s, that by the time those young men hit the finish line at 60 or 70 or 80, it's been my experience that of those 10 young men who started strong, when they hit the finish line, only one out of 10 is actually going to finish strong. And that shocked John Bassanya. He said, one out of 10, that can't be. He said, John, I'm telling you, that's how it works. Because when you set your course to follow Christ, you're going to get opposition. And what you're going to find is, is that men with passion, men with commitment, men with great promise and with great gifts are going to make they're going to make a launch. And then what happens is the enemy is going to come in and he's going to attempt to ambush them. Um, some guys are going to be ambushed by theological liberalism, like Chuck Templeton. Others are going to be ambushed by, uh, by the love of money. It's just, it's just too strong. The love of things, the love of affluence. Others are going to be... Uh, are going to be trapped by uh, sexual immorality. And they're not even going to see it coming. But they're going to make small compromises that lead to larger compromises. And before you know it, they're going to ruin their lives. He said, I'm, I'm just saying, John, one out of ten, in my experience, are going to finish strong. That so shocked young John Bassanio, he went home that night. And what he did... He took his Bible, and you know how they have some blank pages in the back of your Bible? He took one of those blank pages, and he started thinking about his peers and his friends, guys that were in Christian college with him, guys that were committed to Christ, guys who would die for Christ, guys who were going to go on the seminary and be pastors, guys who were going to go to the mission field. 
guys who, this was their passion. And, and, and he's thinking about each of them, and he said, you know, and, and he started writing down names. Because these are my friends, and I know these guys, and we're going to finish strong. He wrote down 24 names that night. I heard him at the luncheon, and he said, I am now 53 years old. He said, I am sorry to tell you that over the years I've received a letter that broke my heart, and I would have to turn back to a page, and I'd have to put a line through a name. Or I would receive a phone call. And whenever this happened, it was just a grievous experience. I'd have to turn back, and I'd have to put a line through a name. He said at the luncheon, I am now 53 years old. Of the original 24 names in the back of my Bible, there are three of us left. So you're saying, uh, so, uh, so you're saying one out of ten. That's quite a uh, alarming statistic. Uh, by the way, you got any scripture for that, Steve? Uh, no, I don't. I can't prove one out of ten. But if your number's thirteen, I can prove two out of twelve. Let's look at Numbers chapter thirteen. So the context of Numbers thirteen is. Under the leadership of Moses, the Lord brought them out of Egypt um, through the ten plagues that were brought upon Pharaoh, and finally he relented, let my people go. Then they go through the Red Sea because Pharaoh's army comes after them. You remember that. And they crossed on dry land, and God got them through, and then as Pharaoh's army pursued them, the sea came and drowned the entire army. And they're on their way to the promised land. So this is the context of Numbers 13. And as they're on their way, and this is just a matter of weeks after the Red Sea experience, we read this in Numbers 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men that they may spy out the land of Canaan. That's the promised land. That's where they're going. And that's where all the ites live. The land of Canaan, you heard of the Canaanites? And then they broke up in the subgroups, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites. They had all these ites up there. Uh, they had strong, fortified cities. They were technologically advanced. These were formidable people. Okay? There's a context. Send out for yourself men that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I'm going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes. So how many tribes were there? There were 12. So each tribe, Moses, is to pick a guy and then note the next one, next line. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribe, everyone a leader among them. So there's going to be a reconnaissance mission. These guys are going to go in covertly for 40 days. On something like that, you want your best guys. So Moses is to pick a guy from each tribe. So if I were Moses, if you were Moses, you'd go to each tribe and say, hey, who's your best leader? Would you not? Yeah, that's exactly what you do. Um, you know, things have changed. It used to be, when I was a kid growing up in church, here's how it worked. Um, my, my, my dad made sure. My, my dad was serious about Christ. So my dad, as a result of that, I was raised this way. I was in church Sunday morning. I never saw Ed Sullivan in my life. I missed Elvis on Ed Sullivan. I missed the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. 
I missed everything on Ed Sullivan. You know why? Because we went back on Sunday night. So we were there Sunday morning, and then we were there Sunday night. Oh, and then we were there Wednesday night. And I remember when I was playing Little League, and we'd play our games on Saturday, and after a game, the after a practice, the coach pulled us all together, and he said, hey, guys, this week there's a scheduling glitch, and uh, we're going to play Sunday morning at 11. Well, I knew right then I wasn't playing. And afterwards, my dad circled around and talked to the coach and just said, hey, just wanted to let you know we won't be able to make it Sunday. Uh, I knew my dad was going to do that. My dad, my dad was pretty good at sports, did real well at sports. My dad liked sports. But my dad loved Jesus more than sports, and he had priorities. And I knew I wasn't going to play in that game. I, there was, I mean, it wasn't even, you didn't even, there was no discussion. I didn't even bring it up. Because we were there Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. So, with that in mind, I can see Moses with, with my grid saying, going around to each guy, who's your best leader here? Who's the guy that has his family in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night? Who's the guy that serves on the board? Who's the guy that's involved in a ministry? Who's the guy that, you know, <coughs> who's your best guy? Who's the guy that's leading? Who's the guy that's influencing? And so he found 12. Okay? Don't ever forget that. It says, everyone a leader among them. And then in 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. He said to them, go up there into the Negev and then go up into the hill country. See what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. How is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? How are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or with fortifications? How is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it? In other words, do a reconnaissance mission, come back and report. So they did it. Um, verse 23, they came to the valley of Eshkol, and from there cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes and carried it on a pole between two men with some of the pomegranates and the figs. It was such an abundant land, the grapes were of such a nature, it took two guys to carry a cluster of grapes. It was quite a land. Uh, verse 25, when they returned from spying out the land at the end of 40 days, they proceeded to come to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation and give them a report. Verse 27, thus they told them, we went into the land where you sent us. It certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Now watch this. Nevertheless, in other words, it's an incredible land. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The descendants of Anak were giants, a little race of giants. Seriously. 29. Mentions all the people that are living, all the formidable people that are living up there who are powerful, who have iron chariots, who have cities that are fortified and massive walls. I mean, they are an intimidating group of people. Verse 30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Why? Because God said we would overcome it. Now see, this is what you call a leader. We walk not by sight, we walk by what? Faith. So every guy in this room, you're facing some kind of circumstance in your future that alarms you and frightens you and gives you some anxiety. Maybe there's been a change 
here recently in your life. And you're trying to figure out, and where you were secure, you're not secure anymore. Because it, it, it was pretty sure, but now it's unsure. And you're trying to figure this out, and you're facing this unknown future that you can't see. And you're thinking, how the heck am I going to get through this? Because you can't see a way to get through it. See, this is called walking by faith. There's no way these two million Israelites can take these guys on the surface. But Caleb says, we ought to move ahead. All those things are true. Those guys are massive, and they're giants, and they got the cities and the iron chair. But you know what? Let's go ahead. Let's go. Why? Because God said he'd give it to us. It's that simple. Okay. 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. Now, I, I want to point something out here. As you know, it's Joshua and Caleb. It's mentioning Caleb here, but Joshua and Caleb stood together. Um, it's interesting, isn't it, that we still name our kids Joshua and Caleb. I've got a son named Joshua. I've got a grandson named Caleb. How many of you guys have a Joshua or Caleb in your families? Let me see your hands. Quite a few guys here. Okay. Um, Joshua and Caleb stay the course. The other ten are saying, we're not able. These people are too great. They are too strong for us. So they gave out 32. They gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Uh, there we also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, or part of the Nephilim, the giants. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. Watch this. And so we were in their sight. Go on to 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. Why? Because they were panicked by the ten leaders. Don't think your leadership doesn't, doesn't play a critical role in your home. When, when a man is stayed on Christ and stayed on his word, when everyone else is panicking, when everyone else is running for the hills, there is a, there is a calmness, there is a quietness of heart, there is a quietness of spirit. Why? Because you know the one true living God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You're not... You, <laughs> You look at what's going on around you with discernment. With discernment. Not just what's going on on the surface. So what they do is, they absolutely demoralize the people. All the sons of Israel then grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Wait a minute. You were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Oh, that would have been better than this. You're not thinking straight. This is nonsense. This is absolute nonsense. But it's where they were. Uh, or, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our, watch this. Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. you got a full-scale rebellion on your hands because the ten guys who everyone thought were genuine leaders, but they were counterfeit leaders, they had no faith in the living God, these guys had very short memories. We cannot take those guys. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Did you not just come through the Red Sea? How many weeks ago? 
and you had no escape, and Pharaoh's army is on your tail, and what does God do by his great power? He opens up the Red Sea. You cross on dry land. God is in details to such a degree that you had no mud on your sandals. Nobody tripped. No one was slogged down in the mud. He just dried up the bed. Got you across. Pharaoh's army comes in. He gets them all in there. Oh, and before that, there were ten plagues put on the nation of Israel, uh, put on the, uh, the nation of Egypt. God kept showing his power. God kept showing his power. When there is absolute darkness in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, the subdivision where you guys lived, there was absolute light. And you're telling me that you've forgotten all of this. Yeah, that's what happened. Uh, as a result, you can go on and read what happened, but uh, as a result of the unbelief of the ten, the people are going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And God wiped out the ten unbelieving leaders with a plague. They were gone. And Moses and, uh, I, I back up, Joshua and Caleb, eventually when Moses transitioned, it was handed to Joshua, and it was Joshua and Caleb. Out of the 12, they were the only two who finished strong. Once again, I would say the moral is this. In the Christian life, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Don't forget, these 10 guys were very impressive or they would not have been chosen by Moses. They looked like leaders, but they weren't leaders. They had all the resumes. They had all the connections. They had all the qualifications. They had all the stuff, but they didn't have the heart. They were just going through the motion. They would say the right things, but it wasn't in their heart. You see, they really didn't believe from their heart. It was just an act. They were playing a game, and they got found out. So I can prove two out of 12. I can't prove one out of 10. But only two out of 12 finished strong. Um, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. See, my question is, how, how, and this is really the purpose of this study, how can I be one of the guys who actually finishes strong? I mean, there are guys that are smarter than I am. There are guys who are more gifted than I am. There are guys that are more disciplined than I am. And uh, we've all got our flaws and we've all got our weaknesses. But, you know, Lord, how can, how, how can I be one of those guys who actually finishes strong? You know, Paul said to Timothy, he said, watch carefully your doctrine and your life. Watch what you believe and watch how you live. 
Those are both critical. Um, it was Blaise Pascal who once said this, all the troubles of life come upon us because we refuse to sit quietly for a while each day in our rooms. Now let me explain that to you. He was a committed Christian. He impacted a lot of people for Christianity, for biblical Christianity. Let me say that again. All the troubles of life come upon us because we refuse to sit quietly for a while each day in our rooms. I've seen that quote twice in the last month, and one of those, quote, one of those um, places was an article about the busyness of the average American. Not only the busyness of our schedules, but the, but the absolute onslaught of our addiction to technology. We're rarely quiet. We're rarely alone. And if we are alone, we pick up a phone and start doing this. Amazing, isn't it? Sometime last year, I was, I might have told you this, I was driving in a school zone, and the moms are all lined up, you know, waiting for the kids to come out. And I noticed, I, I saw maybe two or three moms talking to each other. There must have been 20 moms. You know, you know what the majority of them were doing? I mean, their thumbs are flying. They're all looking down, just looking down. And that's how a lot of us spend our lives. What, what Pascal was saying, and this relates to finishing strong, once again, all the troubles of life come upon us because we refuse to sit quietly for a while each day in our rooms. You know what Pascal would do quietly in his room? He would get quiet before the Lord. It didn't have to be in your room. You can be in your office. You shut the door, you get a coffee break, or you get a lunch hour, shut the door. What? You turn off the phone. Don't check email. Just, for, just be still and know that he is God. Uh, we, we call it a quiet time. When you take some time, a lot of guys do it in the morning, some guys are late night guys, whenever you do it, but you just get quiet. And what do you do? You open your Bible. You read your Bible and, and you just quiet as you read something in your word and you say, you know, Lord, you know, I'm not, I really need some help with this. And you just talk to him. You get quiet in your room. You just get quiet. Or in your car. Instead of listening to talk radio and getting all revved up and ticked off and you want to, you know, you know what I mean. Maybe you turn it off for 20 minutes and you just kind of, you're quiet. And you know, you know, Lord, I got this thing coming. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to work this out. I don't have a clue. Would you help me with this, Jesus? It's just being quiet. It's just thinking. It's praying. Just that alone would eliminate a lot of trouble in our life if we would take time to think, pray, listen. It's a very small prescription. Okay. Hebrews 12. You guys still with me? Christian life is a race. That metaphor is used different places in Scripture. It's going to be used here. Therefore, since we have so great, so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, you say, what does that mean? Well, 
if you read the previous chapter, and you know, always look at the context. If you're not sure what something means, back up a little bit, and you'll figure it out almost 90% of the time. So if you've been, what's this great cloud of witnesses? Well, it's the guys that are mentioned in Hebrews 11, the men who walk by faith, the men who um, have finished the race and are with the Lord. They've gone on before. But uh, these are the guys, their race is over. Now, we're in our race, as we're going to see in a minute. But these were men who walked by faith. Um, Uh, by the way, can I tell you something about these men in Hebrews 11? Um, all of them had messed up. None of them were perfect. Everybody now, it's pretty common to talk about a mission statement. You have personal mission statements, you have corporate mission statements, everybody's got a mission statement. Nobody used to have a mission statement. I remember the first time I, I ever heard of a mission statement. There was a book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I'm reading this guy's book. It was a pretty good book. And in there, he talked about the importance of having a personal mission statement. I remember going, a what? I'd never heard it before. It wasn't common. He really, I think, pretty much got the idea going. And basically what he said is uh, he would... You know, he had a personal mission statement. You take some time to think about your life, but about your values, about what is significant to you, how you want to live your life, where you want to be productive. Uh, and no longer than a page. The briefer, the better. And then he started telling friends they would do it. He started leading, you know, corporate retreats, take these executives off to some remote, you know, paradise retreat away from interruptions and phone calls and all this, where they can actually sit and think for several days, do a personal mission statement. So these guys would come up with a personal mission statement. He said it's not unusual to go back and alter it from time to time. So I'm reading this. I'm right at 40. So I wrote a personal mission statement. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't go to some resort. I couldn't afford it. Uh, I did it at my kitchen table. It didn't take me a day or two. Uh, I mean, I wrote it in about five minutes. And interestingly enough, I haven't changed a word of it in 24 years. If I can, I'd like to share my personal mission statement with you. My personal mission statement is, don't screw up. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, it's not real religious. It's not real, it's not real deep. Oh, and you know what's interesting? I screw up all the time. All the time. And you know what I find interesting? When you read about these guys in Hebrews 11, when I look at their lives and I read their biographies in Scripture, you know what I find out about them? They screwed up. They screwed up. They were deeply flawed men. They were men who were sinners. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But you see, they all trusted in a coming Savior. They put their faith in the living God. They were told, these were Old Testament guys, they were told that one day a Messiah would come. Now, where we're living, he's come. They looked ahead to him. They looked forward to him. We look back to him at the cross. This do in remembrance of me, the Lord's table. You never forget the cross, what Jesus did at the cross, where he came, died in our place. The wrath of God that should have come upon you and me for our sins was put on Jesus, and he paid the price for us, 
He died in our place. You know that great hymn of the church? Jesus paid it 90%? No. Jesus paid it. Anybody know? He paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Whom the Son has set free is free indeed, you see. Um, and and I'm as well, I haven't read Hebrews 12 yet, but I'm going to go ahead and say this. See, when we start talking about finishing strong, whenever I've done a conference on this over the years, I can almost read it on the face of guys. And I've had conversations, and they'll come up and say to me, you know, Steve, uh, and some of you guys are thinking this already. You, you, you don't know what I've done. So you don't know my story, you don't know my past. But I'm telling you, it's too late for me to finish strong. See, I've got decades. I've got decades of squandering my life. I've got decades of hurting people that I loved. I've got decades of... Uh, disobedience. I've got decades of going after wrong idols. I, I mean, Steve, you just don't know. I mean, I blew my fathering responsibilities. I blew my marital responsibilities. I was unfaithful. I could not be trusted. I was a liar. And you see, I didn't even come to know Christ till I was 50. I, I, mean, I mean, this is all good stuff. I'll never finish strong. See, so many guys have a desire to be used by God but they think God will never use them. And by the way, I gave you these uh, Billy Graham and Temple. These guys are all in ministry. They're all full-time guys. And you say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm not in ministry. Well, actually, you kind of are. You're a full-time husband. You're a full-time dad. You're a full-time grandfather. You're a full-time man who's following Christ. You just make your living a little bit differently than some of these guys did. But see, across the board, when you follow Christ, it's full-time. There's no part-time Christianity. You're either in or you're out. Right? You take up your cross daily and follow him. You don't take it up every Thursday and Tuesday. You take it up daily and you follow Christ. So it's all full-time stuff. Doesn't matter if you're an architect or a carpenter or you put down asphalt. It doesn't matter what you do. You're, you're a Christ follower. Yeah, but anyway, Steve, it's too late for me to finish strong. Uh, see, if I had to come to Christ as a young guy, that would have been different. But man, I, I, there's decades of destruction in my life. I've told you this before about the guy at a conference and where you got a break and talking to a bunch of guys, and there's some guy right behind me to the right, off this shoulder. Guys are just talking, we're having a little conversation, and... Uh, one of, this guy on my right, and I knew who he was. I'd seen him the, the night before in that morning. Big guy, big, big, strong guy. Probably 50s, but big. I, I'm going to say 6'6", six, 6'7". Six, six, uh, uh, a biker. Uh, just had the miles, not on his bike, but just all over his face. Tough sucker. He was there. He was listening. He was just a sponge. And as we're talking, someone asked me a question, we're talking, he's off to my shoulder, and he leaned over and he said to me, can God forgive you if you've broken every one of the Ten Commandments? And I said, yeah. He said, okay. See, that's what he needed to hear was the gospel. He needed to hear some good news. 
He, he, hey, he was a screw-up. He knew it. We're all screw-ups. All of us. And what does the enemy do? He comes along to Christian men who have trusted in Christ for their salvation. And what does he want to do? See, so, all right, I'm in, Lord. I'm going to follow you now. And so now you've got an enemy who's going to try to neutralize you. One of the primary ways he's going to do that to discourage you and demotivate you is that he is going to come into your life and he is going to frequently bring up your past screw-ups. Out of nowhere, it'll come into your mind. Something you haven't thought about even in years. Now, there are the big things we're always thinking about from our past that we regret. He'll start bringing up minuscule things you haven't thought about in years. All these, and what's he trying to do? He's trying to paralyze you in the present and make you ineffective by bringing up your past. But see, your past, Jesus has died for. If anyone could have been paralyzed by his past, it was the Apostle Paul. He held the coats of the men who killed Stephen, who stoned him. And, and you know what Paul was? He was a full-time persecutor of Christians. That's what he did. He was passionate to destroy Christianity. So Stephen wasn't the only one. How, how many women were widows because of what he had done? How many uh, men had been put in prison? How many families had been uh, destitute because of what Paul had done, taking their their fathers. I mean, he was a destroyer of Christians, and then he met Jesus on the road to Damascus as he was going to destroy the church in Damascus. And he was turned around, converted. If any man is a Christ, he's a new creature. Do you think Paul, after he came to know Christ, do you think Paul ever had trouble going to sleep at night remembering things from his past? Oh, I'm telling you, he did. You ever think as he was sharing the gospel with someone, that, or, or maybe as he was preaching to a group, he'd see a, a, a wife with small kids, and her husband was dead because of an activity Paul had instituted years ago? Do you think that ever happened? I do. Paul could have been locked up in regret, just like we can be locked up in regret. But Paul said, forgetting what lies behind, I press forward. To the high calling. Uh, Robert Murray McChain, Robert Murray McChain said, for every look you take at yourself and your failure and your sin and your past, for every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Why? Because he's the savior. He's the savior. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Yeah, it's there, but it's passed away. You know, the amazing thing about Christ and the gospel is that he not only forgives us, which is amazing, forgives us completely and totally. He not only forgives us, but to me, the other remarkable thing about him is that he forgives our sin, but he also forgets our sin. You can look it up, Hebrews 10, 17. Your lawless deeds I will remember no more. He blots it out of his mind. I don't know how that happens, but he does. He has forgotten it. It's been buried in the deepest sea. 
Psalm 103, as far as the east from the west is how far he's removed our sin from us. He does not. Go to, go to Psalm 103. So you're thinking, yeah, Steve, I'd really like to be used by God, but I can't. Why not? Well, I'm a failure. Man, you don't know my story. So you think you can't be used by God because you're a failure. Yeah. Well, let me ask you something. Who else does God have to choose from? <laughs> Who's the guy in this room who hasn't failed? And if you raise your hand, you just failed. Because you're all caught up in pride and arrogance. We've all failed. Where am I going? I'm going to Psalm 103. This is remarkable, see? And, 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 and I'm going to read this to you in a minute. But see, the goal is to finish strong. And we're in a race, right? Yeah, we're in a race. But if you keep looking back in a race, you're not going to be real effective. If you keep looking at your past as you're going like this, if you're always looking back, you're not going anywhere. You're not going to have any influence. You're not going to lead. You're not. Don't let me forget Scott. Don't let me forget the elephant. If I don't talk about the elephant in the next two minutes, say elephant. Can you do that? I know you can. Uh, I don't trust me, but I trust you. Look at 103. Verse, verse 8 of Psalms. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in, lo abounding in loving kindness. Uh, look at 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. See, we think he is going to deal with us according to our sins. But Jesus took our sin upon him, and what should have come on us was put on Jesus. Therefore, he doesn't reward us according to our iniquities. Are you not amazed at the goodness of God in your life and what he has done for you? And he just keeps being faithful and he keeps giving and giving and giving and giving and giving. Are you not amazed? It's because of the gospel and what Jesus has done. It's, it's, it, and, and John Newton was right. It's not grace. It's amazing grace. It's absolutely mind-boggling amazing grace. Isn't it? Eleven, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those, towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Well, I don't believe in the Old Testament God. Well, that's Old Testament, and I believe in that God. That's the gospel in the Old Testament. That's Jesus in the Old Testament. Yes, it is. He's everywhere. He's on every page. Elephant. Thanks, Scott. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> so, see, you've got to remember this stuff. Because if you're running the race going like this, you're not effective. A fr friend, a gentleman I know, Bob Beal, uh, in, uh, great consultant for a lot of ministries. But he's really, really a unique guy. Bob's letterhead, he, he had, you know, his name and office, address, all that stuff. But he had this little logo that fascinated me. And just off to the left... It was a logo. It was a picture of a big, massive elephant with a chain around its ankle, and the chain was attached to a stake, like you see the circus. And I remember one time talking to him. I said, "Hey, tell, what's the deal with that? Um, what's the deal with that uh, logo, the elephant?" He goes, "Oh," he said, "You know, years and years ago, a buddy of mine 
was actually an investor in a circus. And, you know, a traveling circus, and they came through, and he called me up one day and basically said, hey, instead of playing golf today, why don't we go to the circus and just hang out? He said, it's really wild to go behind the scenes and see everything. Yeah, let's go. So they did. And uh, one of the things that Bob observed was the uh, elephant trainer. And they had the big elephants and the whole thing, you know. But he noticed that uh, these massive, huge adult elephants, the way they kept them was that they put a chain around their ankles and there was a stake and they, and they never move. And, and obviously they had the strength. I mean, they just could have popped that sucker without thinking about it. And he asked the elephant keeper, he says, how in the world do you keep those massive elephants? I mean, that stake isn't going to hold them. He goes, no. He goes, well, how, how, do you, how do you do that? He goes, well, when they're young, just as they're weaned from their mother, what we'll do is, is that we'll put the chain around their ankle and we'll drive the stake deep into the ground, and they're just little guys, and uh, all they want to do is get rid of that. Uh, they're trying to bust that chain. And they bust and they bust, and they, but they're just little guys and they don't have the strength. And they might do it six months. They do, might do it eight months, ten months. They might do it a year. They never can break loose. And there's a day when in their minds, they know they'll never break that chain. And for the rest of their lives, they'll never try. That's the significance of that. How many of us are chained to a stake in our past? But whom the Son has set free is free indeed. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and, watch this, perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And, and I'll stop there. Um, did you see that phrase, and let us run with endurance? That's significant because, you know, guys, it is a race, but the Christian life is not a sprint. It, uh, in my day, we called it a 100-yard dash. Now it's 100 meters. But I'm not European. I'm an American, so I still call it a 100-yard dash. I just thought I'd throw that in. I just feel better. But it's 100 meters. If you watch the Olympics every four years, world's fastest man is a 100-meter race. Uh, the Christian life is not a sprint. It's not 100 meters. It's not the 200 meters. It's not the 400 meters. The Christian life. And see, the thing is, in a sprint, all you need, and if you watch, the, you know, the, the Olympics, world's fastest man, you know, 100 meters, you know, gold medal race, the thing about those guys is, when you watch that sprint, it's not unusual to see a false start or two. Why? Because the speed among those guys, the speed, their level of speed is about the same. Is it not? The steroid level is about the same. <laughs> and so the only way you're going to get an advantage is if you can anticipate the starter's gun, and that's why you often see a false start or two. Because they're just trying to get a little bit of an edge. Because everything else is pretty much even. Uh, Christian life is not a sprint. The Christian life is a very long, long race. 
There are marathoners, and then there's an ultramarathon. What's an ultramarathon? That's a 100-mile race. There's a group of guys uh, who, who their mothers obviously dropped them when they were young. <laughs> and their hobby is to run 100-mile races. There's a whole group of them. Really. I've met them. I've talked with them. They look normal. <laughs> There's something really wrong. But that's a great picture of the Christian life. Uh, Eugene Peterson called the Christian life. He had a book title. It's a long obedience in the same direction. It's hard. It's difficult. At times, it's discouraging. I've talked with guys. I know a guy, and, and he, he, he will run an ultramarathon every three months. How in the world do you do that? Well, you know how he does it? He gets up every morning at 4.30, actually six out of seven days, and he runs 20 miles before breakfast. You run 20 miles six days a week, every three months, you run 100 miles, you can do it. It's endurance. Now, here's my question. Okay, well, that's great. Well, I want to finish strong. Yeah, I want to finish strong. And I, I want to be one of those guys. And we're going to talk about the different ways in, in the next few weeks. There are different ways you can finish in the Christian life. But to finish strong, what do you have to have? You've got to have endurance. Okay, here's my question. You guys with me? I've got three minutes and 59 seconds. Here's my question. All right, so if I'm going to finish strong, what do I have to have? I have to have endurance. My question is, how do I get endurance? Go to James 1 real quick. Just turn the next book to the right. Verse 2. Consider it joy or think it joy. Count it as joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. It doesn't say you, when bad things, difficulties come into your life. It doesn't mean you experience it as joy. But you have to take a step back and think about it, consider it. So my buddy that would get up at 4.30 and run 20 miles before breakfast... And, and he's sore, or he's got a, uh, you know, a real tight hamstring, or he's got, you know, jabbed pains going into his, his side, or he's got whatever this, or this injury, or this, or this. He just keeps running. I mean, that's an affliction, is it not? But why does he do it? Well, he's thinking it. It's hard. It's difficult. And most guys won't do it. But see, he does it because he's thinking it, not feeling it as joy. He's thinking it as joy. Why? Watch this. Consider it joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why would I do that? Cancer, bankruptcy, loss of employment, you know, family issues. Why the heck would I think of this? Why would I think it as joy when I hit these different trials? And we all have them. Why would I do that? Watch this. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces, and what's the word? Oh, endurance. Oh, that's fascinating. So how do I get endurance to finish strong? God sends suffering. To me. God sends affliction to me. Really? Really? Yeah. Huh. I thought this Christian life was supposed to be easy. No. No, you're listening to false teachers. It's a hard life. Jesus said, in the world you'll have an easy time. You remember that verse? <laughs> he didn't say that. In the world you'll have trouble. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14, 22. Philippians 1, 29. It has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but to suffer for his sake. 
So what do you hear? See, this is finishing strong stuff. So how do I finish strong? Man, I want to finish. Oh, this is great. Oh, I'm pumped up about this. Okay, get ready. You ever see a, a, a kid, 17, 18-year-old kid who spoiled to death, absolutely worthless, has no initiative, has no drive. I mean, just, just entitled, just worthless. And then the next thing, you know, all his options, he's burned all his bridges, and he, he, he's either go to jail or go join the Marines. He joins the Marines. And he gets there and he finds out he's not staying at the Four Seasons. And they're yelling and screaming at him. He's getting him at 430 and they got him running and he's puking and he's doing all this stuff and he can't do anything right and he's got to make his bend and it's not good enough. <laughs> and then you meet the kid six months down the road and he comes back and he's completely changed. And you wouldn't trust him out of your eyesight and now he's qualified to lead a group of young men in the mountains of Afghanistan. Why? Because there's been a transformation. Why? Because he went through a period of boot camp. Not, not affluence, not, not ease, not luxury, hardship, afflictions, difficulties, and it changed him from the inside. That's what the Lord does with us. So you want to finish strong? Well, yeah, but Steve, I'm having a tough time. Well, then you're, 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 you're on track. You're right where you ought to be. Because you're building spiritual muscle and you're having the trust. And you don't see your way out, but you just get up and you follow him. And you listen to him. And you're saying, Jesus, help me, because I, I, I don't think I can do this and you can't. You know, finishing strong is not making up your mind and willpower and all this. It, you know what it is? It's Philippians chapter 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. These difficult, he saved you. He's given you his spirit. He's given you his word. But, but you got to work it out. you got to apply it. Well, I'm not sure how to do this. Well, you just keep following him. And you, and you stay in Bible study. And you stay with some other guys that are following the Lord. And you just you say, Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Just lead me. And, and you know what? He will. He will. And sometimes you take some steps forward, and then you take more backwards. And then you get up, and you say, Jesus, I'm following you. And you just keep walking by faith. And he keeps leading you. My times are in my hand. The Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. He will get you there. But not if you fight him. Get all in with him. I'm done almost. Um, in most races, one of the things that helps you is to see the finish line. And if it's a long race and you're, and you're worn out, when you can see that finish line, you finally get in sight, somehow you can reach down and get a finishing kick. Somehow. I had a friend that went to Oxford, and he rode in the Oxford crew. What a unique sport. And you've seen those sleek shells, and you've seen the synchron synchronization of those young men. And Eric told me, he said when he first got into that sport, the hardest thing for him to adapt to was the fact that he, couldn't, he could never see the finish line. See, in that kind of race, your back is to the finish line. He just couldn't get used to it. But as time went by, he got used to it. 
How do you monitor? How do you, how do, I mean, how do you know where you are? You can't see the finish line. Well, there's a guy sitting on that end of the boat called a coxswain. And he has a megaphone. Not anymore, he's got Bluetooth now. <laughs> and everybody's got a thing, you know. They don't know where the finish line is, but he does. He sees the finish line. He sees the other shells, the other teams. So what do they do in order to run the race? They look at the coxswain. They're not looking at the finish line. See, that's the Christian life. We fix our eyes on Jesus. That's why you want some quiet every day. A little bit of quiet, you shut the door, and you fix your eyes on Jesus. And you talk to him, and you read what he says, and you confess your sin. And he'll give you the juice, and he'll pace you to get through that day. And you go to sleep, same thing the next day. We finish strong by fixing our eyes on Jesus. So, Father, we pray for ourselves. Thank you that you don't hold our past against us. We, we're all disqualified by our past, but Jesus has qualified us as ministers of the new covenant. What an amazing thing. We are so, we are so grateful. We never run out of your grace. We are privileged men, and we say thank you with gratitude in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.